What happens when your experience doesn't match your expectation? It can happen in small ways. It can happen in big ways. One way it happened for me recently was when I was playing cards with my family. I was playing Dutch Blitz, and I had high expectations. I don't, if you don't know me, I am a competitive guy. I like to win. I don't just like to compete. I like to win. I want to win. And so I had a high expectations for this game of Dutch Blitz. However, game after game, I lost. And it seemed like every single game was won by my wife, Rachel. <laughs> my experience didn't meet my expectations, and I was frustrated. Do you know how I wanted to respond? I wanted to throw my cards across the table and march out of the room. I had lost so many times. And other times in our lives, we might want to respond in the same way. Uh, pouting or throwing a hissy fit, right? When our experiences don't match our expectation. It happens in bigger ways. You can consider maybe it's happened to you in a job. You go in with high expectations. You're, you're ready to get on the job. You're excited about your co-workers and your boss. And then after a couple months, maybe after a year, all of that shine has worn away and you're frustrated, and get angry, and it's not as you thought it would be. Kids, have you experienced this at school? You're going in the first day of class and you're ready and you're excited about your classmates and your teachers. You're excited about learning. And how long does it take before you are disillusioned? Things weren't as you expected. Maybe your classmates, the, the very people you thought were your friends, maybe they pick on you and make fun of you. And you're frustrated and you're disappointed. What do we do in those situations when your hopes are dashed and things don't turn out as you had planned? What do you do in suffering? What do you do when you're going through a, a deep trial of sickness or pain? If you're diagnosed with cancer or if a loved one is. Maybe in your life things haven't turned out as you had expected and your experiences aren't matching your expectations. And you might wonder, well, where is God in all of this? Why, doesn't He care about me? Doesn't He want good for me? Why is He allowing these things to take place? And as we come to Psalms 42 to 49, these are some of the same ideas and questions that the psalmist has rolling around in his mind. There's a progression here in these psalms from lament to prayer from prayer to hope, and from hope to praise. But what we'll find as we walk through this progression together is that God does care for us. He does love us. But the real story of what's going on is greater than any individual story of our own. We find that the problem all along hasn't been that we have set our expectations too high and become disappointed. It's that we have set our expectations way too low. Settling for the things of this world when something far greater is in store for us. Let's begin by looking at these first few Psalms, 42, 43, and 44. 
the psalmist is struggling to make sense of suffering in light of God's promises. The reality of his experiences is not matching up with his expectations of what God has promised, of God's faithfulness. Look at the way he describes himself. His soul is parched. Spiritual dryness. He's longing for God. His tears have been his food day and night. His soul is downcast in turmoil within him. And on top of this, look at verses 3 and 10. His enemies, maybe even some of his own people, are mocking him. And they say, where is your God? Perhaps we've suffered at some point and we felt like people didn't respond with the appropriate care or concern for us but imagine suffering from the flu and as you lay there on the couch each member of your family walks by and says where is your God now they mock you can you imagine going through suffering and people kicking you when you're down to that question where is your God the psalmist has a couple of answers both interesting and yet neither perhaps entirely satisfying to us. The first answer to the question seems to be, I don't know where God is. The psalmist is far from Jerusalem, the land of promise, from the presence of God, and he's longing for God. He's longing for the presence of God. God's people have been cast out from their land. Not only is he experiencing suffering at the hands of his enemies, he feels like he has been abandoned and rejected by God himself. For the psalmist, the close presence of God seems like a distant memory. The second answer to the question, where is your God, seems to be this. God stands ultimately at the so- as the source of my sorrows and sufferings. Notice verse 7 of chapter 42. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. These are the words we saw when we went through the book of Jonah. As he is experiencing a separation from God and a longing to be in his presence, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and all your breakers passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And yet, despite this feeling of abandonment and rejection, the psalmist speaks hope to his own soul. He speaks to himself. Notice this refrain in verses 5 and 11, and then again in chapter 43, Psalm 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's speaking to himself. And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. My God, my salvation and my God. Now Psalm 44 has the same flavor of sorrow and lament, and yet now it is expanded to include the whole community of faith. This isn't just the individual experience of the psalmist, but all the people of God as they find themselves scattered, away from their homeland and away from the presence of the Lord. They are in exile. Jerusalem has been conquered. They've been scattered. And all of this despite their own professed loyalty to the covenant. Look at 44 verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone 
out with our armies. They've suffered defeat. They were expecting great success with God by their side, and yet they were defeated. And then again, 44.17, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. But the psalmist talks not only to himself, but also to God. Again, though in a very raw and almost startling way, look at 44 verse 23. Look at how he is praying to God, how he speaks to God. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. In this way, the psalmist echoes words from Deuteronomy 15. Remember how you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Psalmist is pleading with the Lord for redemption because of his steadfast love. In these first few psalms then, the psalmist is wrestling with unmet expectations. The people of God have been scattered throughout the nations. They no longer had a king. They no longer had a homeland. They no longer were a unified people. They could no longer gather together in that holy city in the temple worshiping the Lord together. How could this happen to us? All these things have been promised to God. What what has happened? Why are you so far away? Rescue us, Lord. Is God sleeping in your own circumstance? Did he promise too much and now he's having a hard time delivering on his promises to Israel? The psalmist is clinging to hope He's professing hope to his own soul, and he's also calling out to the Lord for help. But notice how the scene abruptly changes here in Psalm 45. It's as if we're wiping away the tears from our eyes as we've been pleading with God to rescue us when all of a sudden we find ourselves as guests of a wedding. But not any wedding. This is a royal wedding. Wedding. This is a song, a love song for the king. As glorious as the royal wedding between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle was, it was nothing compared to this king who stands awaiting his bride. But what steals the show in this wedding is not the preacher who preaches an amazing sermon. It's not the, the guests of the wedding, the celebrities or the flower girls. It's not the beautiful chapel in which it is taking place. Here, the king himself steals the show, along with his beautiful bride. The king is the most handsome of all the sons of men. Grace pours from his lips. He has the blessing of God forever. He is the mighty one in splendor and in majesty. He fights for the causes of truth and meekness and righteousness. He's described as a mighty warrior who has victory over all his enemies. This is the king. This is the one we look upon and stand in awe of. But notice things get a little confusing in verse 6. The king had been described as human, handsome among the sons of men, the most handsome. But here the throne belongs to God forever and ever. 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then in verse 7, the psalmist says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. What's going on here? And then again in 17, it says, All the nations will praise you forever and ever. A, a term, a phrase that is used only of God in the Scriptures. You see, this king is indeed human. Holding the scepter of Judah in the line of King David who was promised an everlasting throne. And this king is divine. Truly God, the Messiah, the Son of God. From Psalm 2, this king who will have complete victory over all his enemies. Stand in awe of your king, brothers and sisters. Here's how the author of Hebrews interprets this psalm. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. The author is proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, the supremacy of Christ above angels, above prophets, above all. And he says, of the Son, he says, and then he quotes this psalm, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. God's people were in exile without a king. And yet, if they were simply longing for an earthly king who would establish God's kingdom here on earth, their expectations were much too low. They needed none other than God himself to come down and to redeem them. When our eyes are lifted up from our sorrows and fixed on the king, we find comfort and joy. We find hope. So I wonder in your sufferings, in your disappointments, in your sorrows, to whom or to what are you looking for rescue? Who's going to save you? When your experience doesn't match your expectations. Who's going to draw you up out of your sorrows and disappointments? And I would just say, don't settle for anything in this world. Lift your eyes up to the king who has complete victory over his enemies. And I won't give any time to this, but the reader is left in wonder about the identity of this glorious bride. Who is this bride of the king? This bride who woos the king with her beauty and yet submits to him in worship. Well, the people in exile have hope for an everlasting king, but we see in Psalms 46 and 48 that there's another hope, and this hope is for a city. These are called Zion Psalms because they proclaim the beauty of God in his holy city in Jerusalem. The psalmist proclaims, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Psalm 46 primarily describes the city of God as unshakable. The whole world could crumble from top to bottom, and yet we will not fear, because God is our refuge and strength. We're invited also in Psalm 46 to behold the works of the Lord, how he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. 
And notice the familiar words in verse 10. They tell us to cease and desist, to drop your weapons and your strivings and know, understand, the Lord is God. Look at Psalm 48, also a song of Zion, celebrating God as her defender and fortress. In addition to proclaiming the city as well-defended and indestructible, this psalm emphasizes the beauty and might of the city. Look, kings assemble together against it, but what happens as soon as they see the city, they flee in terror. They're frightened. The people of God reflect on the steadfast love of God in the midst of His temple. But look also at verses 12 through 14. The psalmist calls us to walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Know those words, it's almost as if the psalmist is saying that the city they're hoping in isn't merely an earthly city with strong defenses, but that God himself is the city. It's almost as he's imaging forth God as this mighty fortress, this city which they're longing for. That it's not so much the city they're longing for, but the presence of the one who has established it and is defending it. And so it was said of Abraham that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And later in Hebrews 11, it is written of God's people that they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And again, I want to contend that what makes this city so special is not its beautiful streets, the streets of gold or the walls with precious diamonds or buildings or any such thing, but that God himself is in the midst of it. This is the city we're longing for. It is nothing less and nothing more than the presence of God Almighty that we long for in the city of God. The people of God were in exile and they were longing for a home. They were longing for a city. But it wouldn't be enough to simply long for the earthly city of Jerusalem. That would be setting their expectations much too low. We too, brothers and sisters, are a people in exile, right? We need to remind ourselves of this often. This is not our home. We're waiting for a city. You know, I wonder how much that plays into our own unmet expectations in this life. Have you gotten into the rut of thinking that this is your home, that this is where you're going to find joy, where you're going to find happiness? Are you looking for something in this world to someone to give you this type of joy, this type of satisfaction that can only come from an age to come, that can only come from being in the presence of God? Remember Psalm 16. In your presence, O God, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In the midst of your suffering then, Lift up your eyes to the everlasting King who resides in this everlasting city. These are our hopes. This is our hope and joy. 
Not this home, not this life, but the life to come. But notice that in between these two Zion Psalms is Psalm 47. Here, the psalmist calls the peoples to worship this great God and King. And the word here for peoples is a term including not only faithful Jews, but people from all nations. Notice in verse 9 again that the noble ones of the people gathered together as the people of God, the God of Abraham, to worship Him. The psalmist's hope then expands further, not only to include an everlasting king in an everlasting city in which God dwells, but also a city in which a people of God are formed together from all the nations to worship God in everlasting praise. In exile, God's people had no kingdom. They had no king. They had no city. They longed for a king in the city of God. They were divided and scattered among the nations, but they longed for unity as God's worshiping people who dwelt in His presence. Maybe it's already occurred to you or come into your mind, but I can't help think of Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's a good vision, isn't it? That's what we're waiting for, brothers and sisters. But there's one more stop in our progression through these psalms, these songs of Korah. Look at this proclamation in Psalm 49. It's almost an echo of Deuteronomy 6.4, what's called the Shema, this call to Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But here, the people of all the world, all the people of the world, both low and high, both rich and poor, together are called to listen and hear who the Lord is and what is required of them. And look at the psalmist's question in verse 5. Why, this is his riddle. Why should I fear in times of trouble? Hearkening back to the lament of Psalms 42 through 44. After all, even those who cheat me, those who boast of their wealth, they can't pay God so that they can avoid death. Why should I fear in times of trouble? Scripture says in verse 7 there, No man can ransom another or give to God the price for his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. The universal scope of this, don't miss it. No man can ransom another. No man can pay the price for his own ransom. Brothers and sisters, there is no price you can pay to redeem your soul from death. You have sinned against God. You have rebelled against Him day after day. You can't pay enough money. You can't pay enough in good works. You can't pay enough in sorrow and penitence. Your debt is too great 
for you to pay to redeem your life from the grave. The point of the psalmist is this. Every person from the greatest to the least will go down to the grave in death. Everyone. Those famous people you admire, those musicians, those pop stars, those celebrities you so admire, kids and teens, even adults, they all end up in the same place. They're going down to the grave where the psalmist says, the grave will be their shepherd. And he almost gives the picture of this shepherd, the grave feeding on them instead of caring for them like a shepherd should. And then what will happen to all their money? What will happen to all their fame? There's a song that's out now by, you probably never heard of them, Little, Little Duval and Snoop Dogg. Maybe you have heard of them. I can't quote the lyrics to you. I can't even quote the title to you. But the theme of the song is, I'm living my best life now. And you know, it kind of makes sense if you believe there is no heaven. If there is no afterlife, it completely makes sense to live for all the pleasure you can here and now. To pursue it with everything you've got. As Christians, as those who believe in the afterlife, as those who trust in Christ, we're, we're putting all our chips on the table that there is a kingdom which is to come. Right? For if this life is all there is and we've been holding out for something greater, we've been holding out for another life, we haven't been pursuing our pleasure here and now because we're deferring that because there's something greater out there. If none of that's true, then we have missed our only chance at having happiness. We've missed our only chance at a good life. What happens to all their money, all their possessions, all their celebrity, their coolness, it will all be forgotten. They end up in the grave. But there's a big exception to all this that we see in verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of shale. For he will receive me. This word for ransom can be translated also redeem. God will redeem my soul from the power of of shale. It refers to getting something in exchange for a certain price. It's used elsewhere in Scripture, most notably in Exodus 13, 3, 13, 13, where Moses is speaking to the people about redeeming their firstborn. You remember in uh, Egypt, Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let God's people go, and so the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, human and beast. And so God's people sacrificed all their firstborns in the land except the firstborn humans they redeemed. They had to pay a price in order to receive their sons back. It's said in this psalm that no man can pay the price for another's redemption, but the Lord would redeem the soul of the psalmist from death. How would God do this? How would God save his people in this way? redeeming their soul from death. You can easily see why so many of the Jews completely missed the point. They were looking for an earthly king. They were looking for the establishment of an earthly kingdom in an earthly city. They were looking for an earthly place in which God's people would worship Him 
forever. And so when Jesus arrived on the scene in meekness and in humility, born of a woman, performing signs and preaching the gospel, they completely rejected him. They said, that's not our king. They were looking for something else, a conquering king, a handsome king who would establish the kingdom here on earth. But they missed it. And if we're honest, we would have missed it too. Unless by some miracle, the Holy Spirit of God opened our blind eyes to see. Unless He replaced our hearts to have a heart that beholds this King and sees Him as our Savior. It was Jesus Himself who said in Matthew twenty twenty eight, The Son of Man came not to be served like a king should be served, but to serve and to give Himself to give his life as a ransom for many, as a payment exchange for our souls. There's 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom. In Hebrews 9, 15. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus Christ is that redeemer. He is the king who then gave himself for his subjects. He not only comforts us in the sufferings of this life, he entered into the sufferings of this life. And like the psalmist, he suffers to the point of feeling rejected by God Himself when He cries out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? And this is how you know God cares for you in the midst of your disappointment, in the midst of your sufferings. He offered up His only Son as a sacrifice for your sins to redeem you from that great debt that you owed. In this great exchange, God offered the payment of His Son for the cost of your own soul. By Christ and Christ alone, Your soul is redeemed from death. So then, the answer to the question posed in verse 5, Why do I need not fear in times of trouble? Because God Himself will redeem me from death. And not only will He redeem me from death, look what else He says, He also will take me to Himself. The presence of God. He will save me in order to be with me and I with him forever. But again, perhaps like Israel, our unmet expectations are caused by our misplaced expectations. We hope for an earthly king that will solve our earthly problems. We hope for joy in this life, though we would readily affirm we're not pursuing our best life now. Sometimes we may find ourselves pursuing the best life as possible. We know there's a life to come, but boy, we sure do want to enjoy this life as much as possible, pursuing it with everything that we've got. Our expectations then are not too high, but again, much too low. Or listen to the way C.S. Lewis puts it. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Here then is the ultimate hope of Psalms 42 through 49 and for the people of God. There is an everlasting king who dwells in an everlasting city who will receive the everlasting praise of his people who have been redeemed from death and welcomed into the very presence of God. And all of this is because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Put your hope in him. Long for him. Long for this. Hold out for that age which is to come, brothers and sisters, and you will not be disappointed. Let's pray together.